So Titus, uh, so Paul tells Titus to stay in Crete, to stay on the island of Crete, um, which would have been a hard assignment. Uh, I imagine uh, the Bible doesn't tell us how that exactly went down, but based on uh, our knowledge of the Apostle Paul and the, our knowledge of Titus and the type of person he was, I imagine Paul went to him, said to him, I need you to stay here, and he didn't even blink. He said, yes, sir, I got it, and uh, he knew it was a tough assignment. He knew it was going to be a great challenge, but nonetheless, it was just the, it's the kind of assignment that a guy like Titus is made for. Now, understand that this new uh, group of believers, this new church that Paul had established uh, on Crete, you know, they're, they, they're, they're having some struggles because, like I said a few weeks ago, Paul had to leave earlier than he would have liked. The Holy Spirit had him move on, had a plan for Titus to do this. But there's thing that basically this letter is the things that Paul would have set in place and done had he been able to stay in Crete. And it's interesting to me that um, basically this letter is, is Paul reminding Titus and those believers in Crete what he's already said to them. And what it tells us is that um, when you are establishing a work, everything revolves around leadership. If you don't have leadership, everything's going to be a fiasco. And so that's really what this whole thing is about, is about uh, training, identifying, equipping leaders. That, that's, what, uh, that's what the Bible wants us to know about this church and every church. It needs good, strong uh, leadership. And so that's what uh, is so encouraging through this letter. Now, Titus chapter 3 Let's begin reading in verse 1. He says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior Toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about this text is that what you have here is basically, um, it, it's a, a sandwich, if you will. In other words, the, the two slices of bread are verse 1 and verse 8. And Verse 1 and verse 8 both talk about good works. So it starts with good works, it ends with good works, and then it builds up to an apex in the middle, which would be a discussion of regeneration. So there's a, there's a, there's a conversation about good works, building up to regeneration, and then a conversation back down to good works, which is very important for you to understand. So let's just... Uh, Let's just get some, the basis of this whole thing out of the way right off the bat. So in case you have to leave in five minutes, you'll get the basis of everything you need to know tonight. And the first thing is, is that regeneration is a new birth for a new life. That's why we start with good works and build up to regeneration. Everything that the Bible says in these eight verses is so under attack today, it's unbelievable. The second summary truth is, is that the new birth will always give evidence by a new life. Always. 
There's no indication, there's no, uh, there's no biblical um, idea anywhere in Scripture that would say anything to the, uh, to the effect that a person might be born again and then that might be something that's invisible to the people around them. That's a, that is a, something that's been manufactured by the modern church. It's something that's, that's a concoction of uh, uh, people's imagination and just their willingness to want to believe something because they want it to be true. So then they just convince themselves that it is when it's 100% unbiblical. All right, so let's uh, take it apart bit by bit, bit by bit. Number one. God cares what we do. He cares what we do. Again, every one of these things is so uh, countercultural in the liberal theology of today. He begins, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Hmm. You think that maybe we have a problem with this today? What, what problem do we have amongst Christians today that's worse than the problem we have with regards to relating to authority in a biblical way? Now, understand, this uh, verse 1 is, is Paul has lots to say about authority. Authority in the church, authority in the home, authority in the workplace. We've talked about some of those in, this, in the book of Titus already. This is a different kind of authority. This is the kind of authority that we struggle the most with. This government authority. It's where we embarrass God more than any other place today right here. Right here. Christians are not rebels. And anyone who is a rebel is not representing Christ. And I don't know what in the world has gotten everybody so twisted up sideways, but there's going to be a lot of hard answering to give. And it's not just for things people have done. It's going to be for things people have typed. And you're going to give account for it. So you better think long and hard because God's not impressed with all your opinions about the things you like and don't like or what you think things ought to be. He really doesn't care about any of that, to be honest with you. He doesn't care. He cares about what he says. It's what he cares about. And what you say, I want you to think about something. Me and you, because it's easy. We could point fingers all night outside the room, but, but, but this is about us in this room right here. Many of you in this room, you are going to give account for every, listen closely, idle word. Every one of them, you're going to give account for it. That's what God says. And so all your opinions and all of your finger-pointing and wagging your knowledge and trying to prove your point, and the thing is, you think you're being spiritual when you're doing it. Aren't you glad you came to church tonight? Christians aren't rebels. And let me tell you something else. Christians don't support rebels. You got that? We don't support rebels. Because Jesus is not about that kind of rebellion. Christians aren't anarchists. You need a good, hard line. You need to understand that there is a theology that rule, that's supposed to rule your life right here. And over here, 
You can have whatever political ideas and affiliations you want to have over here, but you better make doggone sure that what you got going over here is not infringing upon or mocking anything that's over here. You got it? Because, you, you know, look at Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. I mean, how clear would it have to be? How clear would it have to be? Doesn't matter what your opinion is, what you feel. You're not God. He's in control. Listen, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So what have you said that has mocked what God has instituted? What have you defamed that God has instituted? Huh? You see, here's a good way to understand this. We're to honor the position even if the person isn't honorable. God's not calling you to, 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 uh, to exalt unrighteousness. But you know what he's calling you to do? Submit to the authority that he's put in place. That's what he's calling you to do. Be respectful. Act like you believe the Bible and at least know what it says. Here's the crazy thing. Look back at Romans 13, 1 and 2. Do you know what the situation was when Paul wrote these words to the church at Rome? Who is the governing authority over Rome in as his pen is literally writing these words, who is the emperor of Rome? It's a lovely man named Nero who's burning, burning Paul's brothers and sisters at the stake in the streets. And that's what he writes. Think about it. And me and you got problems? We got opinions? Uh-uh. What about 1 Peter 2? Be subjects for the Lord's sake. Can we do that? Can you look past the individual and be subject for your Savior's sake? That's the question the, the Bible's asking. Can you do that? Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It's so important. We're called to be law-abiding people. We abide by the law. That's what we do. We're peaceable. We're not pushovers, but we're not anarchists and we're not rebels. And you know, the thing is, you're distracted. Why are you, why are you, why are you giving all this energy to things that have no eternal value? Some of you... It just makes my stomach want to, it just makes me sick to think about how much time you invest watching and reading and all of this stuff. And, and what, about, what about the Bible? What about... What about the Lord? What about your relationship with God? What about all the things that God's called you to do? What about all those things that are not getting done because you're doing what? You see? You're distracted. 
It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter, but, but what it means is that you're making it matter way too much. Way too much. The minute you're more concerned about what's in the news than who around you is going to hell, we got a massive problem. I guarantee you one thing. I don't care what is in the news until I have righted my heart with who around me is going to hell. That's what's pressing on my life. That's what matters. Look, he says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, comma, to obey. To obey. Now, I want to ask you a question. I mean, we got to move or else it's going to be ridiculous tonight. But if you tell your child to go upstairs and put away their dirty clothes, put their dirty clothes in the hamper or whatever, and they stomp their feet all the way up the stairs, and they go in their room, and they sling their clothes into the hamper as hard as they can. Is that what you consider obedience? Because it looks to me like that's how most people are obeying the authorities today. Oh, you do what you have to, but you grumble the whole way. You stomp your feet like a little kid the whole way. Is that obedience or not? I'm just asking the question. It's interesting that you have one set of standards for your children, but another set of standards for yourself. Just pointing it out. Be subject to the rulers and authority and obey. See, we should obey the law even if it's unreasonable. You know why? Because we don't make the law. Now, if you have an opportunity to participate in the making of the law, you ought to participate in it. But whatever it ends up being, you know what? You got to obey it. See, nobody cares what you think about the speed limit. Nobody cares what you think about it. That's just what it is. Right? See, the only time, obviously, that we have the right to disobey the law is when obedience would force us to disobey God's law. But that's not what we're talking about now, is it? No. We obviously know that. And what if that happens? What if we get in a situation where we have to disobey the law in, in order to not disobey God's law? No problem. The Bible's crystal clear. Then we willingly, and if we're going to model the Bible, joyfully accept the consequences for civil disobedience as a result of our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. No problem. There's plenty of things I'll get thrown in jail for. No problem. But as of now, nobody's telling me that I can't do it. But if it happens, no problem. I'll go to jail. But see, that's really not what we're... That's, that's not the problem. Remember in Acts chapter 5, when, uh, you know, when the... Uh, when they, the authorities told Peter he couldn't preach the gospel? And what did he say? Ah, we're not, we not going to obey man over God. No, we're not going to do that. But you see, it's, it's really an, the issue today is about priority. That's, that's the problem. See, when it comes to spreading the gospel, the biggest problem isn't that we don't speak it's what we say when we do speak. That's the problem. 
That is the problem. So remind them, see, because he's already taught this. He's telling Titus, remind them to be subject to the rules and authorities to obey. And then here's the big one. To be ready. That's big. To be ready for every good work. That was the, that's the thing that really got me about this passage. Ready. What does that mean? Are we ready? Yeah, we're ready. Oh, yeah, we're ready. No problem. Are we ready? You know what that word means? That word ready in the original language, it means organized preparedness. That's what it means. So let's think about this for a second. Willingness in action. See, this isn't to be ready for good works isn't, isn't to say I'm available. No, no. This is way more than saying I'm available. It's willingness in action. So I'm praying today, God, you got to help me with this being ready for good works. You got to help me with this. How do I get this across? Then I get a phone call. Person on the other end of the phone says, Hey, uh, here's the situation. The Holy Spirit gave me an opportunity, and I missed the opportunity. And I don't want to miss those opportunities. I'm like, is this happening right now? I'm trying to figure out how to explain to you to be ready, right? So I say, well, here's how that worked out in my life. When I realized, when I would realize that I missed an opportunity, I would turn around and go back See, because saying, oh, I missed it, I'll catch it the next time, that's not preparedness and action, right? No, I'd go back and I'd do it, right? Okay, so I said, that's what I did. Voice on the other end of the phone, amen. That's what I'm, I'm turning around right now. Whoop, turns around. I said, I'm praying. I hang up the phone. Then I hang up the phone and I start to pray and I realize I just answered the same question I was asking God to answer. Then the phone rings again. You're not going to believe it. Yes, I will. I already knew it was fixing to be something awesome because God was answering my prayer at the same time the whole other thing was going on, right? That's what readiness, see, readiness, this is what God does. God's testing you to see if you're ready. So the Holy Spirit says, hey, why didn't you? And then you go, oh, I'll do it next time. And God's like, not ready. But when you turn around and you go do what he told you to do, then God's like, oh, you're ready. So here's some more good works because you're ready, right? You see, it's action. Then I started thinking about this. I started thinking about we have families in our church who, who when, they, when they consider taking a job opportunity, the amount of money that they make at the job is not even on the table. The issue, the driving issue as to whether or not they're going to they're gonna take this job or not take this job is things like, what's it going to do to my schedule, my availability to serve at the church? What's it going to do to my availability? We have people in the church that wouldn't take a job if it paid a million dollars if the job schedule made it so that they couldn't go on mission. That's what I'm talking about, being ready. See, you wonder, this is what, there's so many people are, in, are, are living in the, you, you sit in the land of abundance where people are, are flourishing in God like there's no tomorrow all around you, yet you're dying of thirst and you wonder why. And the reason is because you're not ready. Like you wonder, you, you say, well, I'm ready, God, use me, but you don't have any margin. You don't, you don't have any money in your savings account. So you can't, if God called you to go, you can't go because you don't have any money. 
Because you haven't been a good steward of what he's given you. If God, God puts a need in front of you, you can't help the need because you don't have any money. That's why, that's why you don't see needs all the time because you can't do anything about it. But you're starving to death wondering why you don't, why, why you're so thirsty. It's because you're not ready. You haven't put anything in, in practice. You think I'm crazy. Why don't you do this? You put $1,000 aside. And you tell God, God, I saved this $1,000 up. It's your money. I'm not going to spend a penny of it until you show me what to do with it. And watch how long it takes for God to show you. He will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. But the reason he's not is because the truth is you're not ready. You can't move. You can't go. You can't respond because you don't have any. You don't have any time. You don't have any money. You don't have any. You don't, you're not ready. You want to do good works? Be ready. And for goodness sake, when the Spirit of God tells you that you missed something, hit the brakes, you turn, go back, and get it done. That's what that means. First two, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Hmm, what a blessing. I'm not going to stay here too long because if I did, it'd be painful for everybody. Let's just say this. Every wicked culture is overrun with wicked conversations. Is that, is that spiritual rocket science? So guess what? Every day of your life, you're going to have to battle the temptation to get engaged in meaningless, wicked conversations. It's never going to not be a temptation. Every single day at work, every day online, every time you're in the, if you leave your house, it doesn't matter. And there's always wolves among the sheep trying to rally up too. Look, look at what the verse says. Speak evil of no one. You got that? Is there any wiggle room in that? What about the people who wronged you? Hurt your feelings, stabbed you in the back. What? Huh? What does it say? No one. No one. No one. Nobody. Be peaceable. You always riled up about everything. You know, if I know all the things that you're against, I ain't calling you for nothing. I'm not. You're the last person on my list of am available ambassadors. I'm just being honest. Because when I think of you, all I think of is all the things that you're against, because I know them. Everyone knows them. Because you're not peaceable. You're not gentle. You, you know what? What does showing all humility to all men mean? What, what does that look like? What is the, how would you explain to somebody showing humility to all men in a very concise, simple way so that nobody would be confused about what that means? That means treating everyone else better than yourself. That's what humility is. I rest my case. I wonder, I wonder why. Why are you thirsty? I watched the rock rain water and honey on this congregation 
all the time. There are people in this room who drown in the water and the honey that the rock flows out on them. And there are some of you that sit right in the same room and you're dying of thirst. You're not ready for good works. Oh, you say you are, but you're really not ready. And if you're ready, then you know I'm not talking to you because you're already living it. See? You know it. See, everyone in this room who's walking in good works right now, you know who you are. And if you're wondering if it's you, it's not. I really am in a good mood tonight. It's just the text. Then this has nothing to do with me personally or you personally. It's just God's word. I mean, it's just the way I love. It's just hard sometimes. But that's how God loves. He loves me hard so I can love you hard. Number two. So the first thing is God cares what we do. Because why? Because he changed who we are. That's why. The last thing God wants is for you to be bearing evidence of of the opposite of what God accomplished in your life. That would just make common sense. So verse 3 says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Well, amen. But that's not who we are. That's who we were. So I don't need to talk very long tonight about who we were because that's not who I am and that's not who I'm hoping most of you aren't anymore, right? So just a couple things to think about. This issue of being foolish. Well, let's make sure we know the distinction. Ignorance is not knowing what is right. That's ignorance. Foolishness is knowing what is right and not doing it. And that's, those are two very different things and you need to know that. Oh, we used to be ignorant, but that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that we were foolish. And then some of these words we don't use much, like the word malice. See, that's, that's seething anger that looks to get even. There shouldn't be anywhere in your life or my life where we're trying to get even. Ever. There's no scenario where we're trying. Why are, we, why are you trying to get even? Where does that come from? There's no scenario where that's godly. What about envy? Envy is a resentment of what other people have, but the problem where it magnifies itself is to the point that you delight in their misfortune. See, God cares what we do because God changed who we are. And we're not those things anymore. And so those things aren't a part of us. They got to get out of us, get away from us. We got to move past. We got to remember, if you don't know who you are, you're going to behave like who you were. That's not who we are. We're not that anymore. So he cares what we do because he changed who we are. And then it's supposed to be number three. Because God cares about us. He cares about us. I'm going to back up to that principle. He cares about us. Now, the principle that we're not who we were anymore is that we had a heart that couldn't be remodeled. It had to be remade. See, we didn't go through a remodeling process we didn't get tuned up or fixed up or cleaned up or beefed up or any of that kind of stuff. We, salvation is about remaking. It's about regeneration is where this is all headed. And it's important to understand that 
you can behave like who you were, but you can't become who you were because you're not that anymore. A saved person is a saved person. And the work that God does can't be undone. We can't do it and we can't undo it. So God cares about us. It's the kindness and it's the love of God that appeared. And it's Jesus. That's what it is, see? In verse 4, he says, But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, who was that? Jesus. How did it happen? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I mean, that is the gospel if I've ever read it in my life. So Paul wants us to know, well, how does regeneration, how does this not remodel but this renewing, how does this not happen? Just so that there's no confusion. That's why he says in verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. It's the same heresy then as the same heresy now. That somehow our works add up to something, amount to something, make us more lovable, make us more savable. Absurdity. Isaiah 64. But we all, like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness, it's just filthy rags. It's filthy rags. See, Paul says in verse 5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. He's not saying, well, you haven't done anything good. Well, everybody's done something that they can say, well, you know, it's not the greatest thing, but it's good. At least it wasn't bad or whatever, or it's better than somebody else. Or and he said, oh, that's all filthy rags. That doesn't amount to anything. That has nothing to do with God renewing our heart. See, when it comes to our relationship with God, we contribute nothing except the sin that makes it necessary. That's it. In salvation, the only thing we bring to the table is sin. So he says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, comma, but according. So what is it that moves the heart of God towards sinners? If it's not, see, the, the point is, is that thinking would be what moves our heart towards things. Well, what, how does it benefit us? What's going to be the best outcome? What's gonna, but so we would think God's heart moves towards sinners. Who's the most, who's the most usable? Who's the most gifted? Who's the most this? Who's the least bad? Who's the, all these, we have all these ideas about that. And none of that applies. No human wisdom applies. What moves the heart of God towards sinners is only one simple thing, and it's mercy. But according to his mercy, he saves us. It's just mercy. That's it. And so mercy is not a reward for good behavior. Well, no. That wouldn't be mercy at all. That would be some form of earning. No, what mercy does is it withholds what is deserved and instead gives kindness and love. That's what the passage says. The withholding of what we deserve. What moves the heart of God towards sinners, what moved the heart of God towards me in salvation and towards you in salvation is nothing but sheer mercy. That's what moves his heart. Because God, understand this, God has perfect knowledge, which we don't. He has perfect knowledge of what we deserve. See, we don't have any idea 
We don't have any clue. We can't even begin to comprehend the wrath of God. But God knows what His wrath is. So when He looks at sinners, what compels Him to move towards sinners has nothing to do with anything other than He understands the the totality of what is at stake. See, he's not distracted by lesser things. He's not distracted by. Nothing distracts God from being merciful ever. Ever. And so salvation is an act of sheer mercy. It's mercy. What salvation is is the withholding of the wrath that we fully deserve. So when somebody says that they're saved, what that means is that, is that you're, if you're saved, you're born again. You're not remodeled, you're born again. And the only way, the only way to have eternal life is to be born again. That's what the Bible says. And the only way to be born again is to repent of your sin and to place your faith and trust in Jesus as Lord. That's what the gospel is. In his atoning work on the cross, that what he did on the cross accomplished a way for you to be forgiven. You see? That should consume, that should consume us right there. We should be consumed by that. The furthest thing from any of our minds should be the fact that, well, I've experienced that, so let's move on. No, no. The very fact that I've experienced that means I can never outgrow the necessity of focusing on the reality of who do I ever come in contact with that does not know this yet. There's no more important thing. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done according to His mercy, He saved us. How? Through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, basically, I just want to make sure that you don't uh, misunderstand what this passage is about because there's a lot of confusion about it out there. And so I want you to get this right, okay? There is absolutely nothing in this passage referring to anything that has to do with baptism. Nothing at all. But you will hear people say that, and that is one 100% wrong and has led to all sorts of uh, heresy and false doctrine. Now, we know this for two reasons. Number one, Paul's talking about something that the Holy Spirit does, not you. That's the first clear indicator this could po not possibly have to do with anything with regards to baptism. But people think, well, but it, it says the washing of regeneration, negative. So all the false teaching that's around where people think baptism, you're not saved till you're baptized, this is where that came from, and that is false. The thief on the cross didn't get baptized. He was with Jesus in paradise today. There wasn't a baptism service. Let's get off the cross and have a little baptism service. I mean, hello. And you got churches that believe this, and I'm thinking nobody in here has thought about that. Number two, Paul's talking about something that happens on the inside, not the outside. Baptism, yes, it's important, and it is, but it is an external symbol of something that's internally occurred. And it is not salvation. You're not saved in baptism. We're celebrating salvation in baptism. That's what we're doing. Celebrating. Celebrating. So here's what Paul is talking about. When Paul says the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, he's just, all he's doing is giving the fulfillment of what Ezekiel 36 says, 
when God said, then I will sprinkle clean water on you? Is that talking about baptism? No. And you shall be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. A salvation. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you uh, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. See, you can you can behave temporarily like who you were, but you can't become who you were because you're not that anymore. And you will keep my judgments and do them. Or, as I like to say, you will get very well acquainted with well belly, Jonah. See, the Bible says that once he puts his spirit in you, he's going to cause you to walk in my statutes. See, the rock's following you around. Once the spirit's in you, the rock's behind you. So you might decide, well, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Well, you know, sometimes water flows from the rock. Sometimes honey flows from the rock. But sometimes the rock steamrolls your uh, little hiney. Yeah. See, if I have full confidence that you're saved and you're telling me you're about to do something stupid, hmm. My first thought is, now, what I'm about to tell you, you're not going to enjoy at all. But it's going to be like an ice cream cone compared to what God's going to do. I'm just trying to warn you. If you think this is bad, go on, Jonah, go get you some. You like whale belly? Go on. The rock always wins. But a lot of times I'm talking to people, the rock's not following them. I don't have any reason to believe that, just because you say that. But if the rock's following you, oh yeah. If the Spirit is in you, the rock never loses. Never. Not ever, no chance. Number four, and see, because God came to us. He came to us. We didn't go to him. He came to us. He says, through the washing and regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us. See, we didn't go to the pouring out party. He didn't say, hey, I'm pouring it out. Anybody who wants it, you come on over here, get in this line, and everybody in this line is going to get it poured on them. That's not how that went down. He dumped it on my head when I was yet sinning against him. I'm just rolling along, doing my thing, following my flesh. And out of nowhere, a rock knocked me sideways. And when I got up off the ground and realized, hold up a second, what just happened? See, he did that to me. He did that to you. You didn't, you didn't do that. He did it. By the time you realize what he did, he'd already done it. Look how generous he is. He, he didn't just put a drop on your head. He dumped it on us. Man, I mean, I just want to get fired up about that. He dumped the whole bucket on Tony. Dumped the whole bucket on you. Here's the thing. He dumped the whole bucket. Everybody gets the same bucket. It's a bunch, man. All just dumped it on us. See, what God did in the life of the disciples in the upper room in Acts 2, that being Pentecost, he does in every single individual who is born again. There's no difference. There's no difference. You didn't get some second-rate, burnout, stale, old, leftover Holy Spirit. You got the same bucket they got. The bucket that turned the world upside down is the same bucket dropped on your head. You got access 
We got access. Sometimes we, we think, man, like, you know, like they, they got to eat of the bread that came out of the oven, and we over here, chomp, you know, trying to sweep up the crumbs. That ain't how that went down. He poured it out. Look what he says. Poured it out on us. How did he do it? Abundantly. Abundantly. So not only does God love us, but God is with us, and he is in us, and he is in us abundantly. I mean, what in the world? See, it started out bad, didn't it? You thought, Lord, we ain't going to make it tonight. But we had to, we had to get in down in the ditch and start climbing up the mountain, and now we're getting up there by the top where we can see some things, and it's getting good. But you can't get to the top without starting at the bottom. Abundantly. Look at verse 7. Oh, Lord, this is the best part. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Huh. So Paul chooses, of all the words he could have chosen, he chooses the very specific word that we translate into English, justified. It's very specific. Whenever you see that word, it's, it's very intentional. He could have said, having been saved by grace. He could have said that, but he did not. He said justified. And justified to be declared not guilty or righteous before God. So just a quick reminder, if the king of the universe declares you not guilty, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't even matter what the voice in your head tells you. The only way you will ever understand anything about what the Bible means when the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is you have to understand justification. Because the only way you're not condemned is if you know what this means. A saved person has been declared not guilty by a judge who can never be overruled. There's no appeal. There's no higher power. There's no once he slams the gavel down, it's it forever done. You now are not guilty. That's what that means. Because, how, because I am guilty. So how did that happen? Because the guilt that I am was imputed to Jesus and the perfect righteousness that he is was imputed to me. So we switched records. So when I stand before the judge, the judge judges me according to Jesus' record. Jesus on the cross got judged according to Tony's record. So what's so crazy about this idea that we've been justified by his grace? See, remember, see, mercy caused him to move to you. He didn't move to you in grace. He moved to you in mercy because it was too early for grace. He looked at you and he looked at me and he saw, oh, Lord. All he could see when he looked at me was the wrath that was coming. And in mercy, he moved to me. And he justified me how? By grace. Grace is the giving of what you don't deserve. You know what he did? He gave me his record and he took mine. So you know what that means? That actually means that we're, we're not just as if we never sinned, but also as if we had always obeyed. Think about that. That's what, that's what being justified is. Because guess what? Jesus didn't just not sin. He also always obeyed. Everything he did was the perfect thing at the perfect time, in the perfect moment, in the perfect way. And that's the record that I get before God. That's how God relates to me. Now, I wonder why Paul 
wants us in this moment to understand that truth. Hmm? All right, flip back to page one. Just turn your thing over. I know you're done. You know, you got to run home and watch Fox News and find out what the election did. Just kidding. Not. Why? Why justified? Think about where we started. Think about, look at the text. Look at what, what we're being reminded to do. Think about all the ways that you fail at all those things in the first three verses. They seem so hard. Why do we struggle with submission? Why? Let's just be honest in your heart. What is it that you get so worked up about? About people being in authority that you don't think ought to be there? Huh? You never tell anybody, but it's in your heart. What is it? You're afraid you're going to lose out. The truth is, the reason that you don't like people in authority is because they make decisions that make your life more difficult. It's the truth. What about, why do we struggle with being ready for good works? Huh? Come on. How come there's no margin? You're just on a razor all the time. Oh, God, use me. God, use me. Pfft. How's he going to do that? What's he going to use? You're like a wore-out paper sack full of holes every day. I mean, what's he going to use? You barely just, you know, got in the door tonight. Why? Why, why do you live that way? Because it's fun? No, you don't want to live that way. You wish it was different. You're tired. You're exhausted. But yet you keep doing it. And I wonder why. What are the choices? What is driving the choices that you make? You, God's not providing for you well enough? Is that the problem? I don't think that's the problem. What's the problem? See, if submission is, well, we're afraid we're going to lose out. The reason we're not ready is because we, we live because we're afraid we're going to miss out. That's why you spend money you don't have. That's why you work like a dog all the time. That's why you're chasing the rabbit all the time. Because you don't want to miss out. You want things. These things are going to make you happy. God wants to use you. And so you know why he chose that word justified right there in verse 7? Because if we knew who we are before God justified, if you knew that, like if you really knew what God sees when he looks at you, if you knew that, And you knew that you had become an heir, a legal, legally entitled to the inheritance which is yours. And your justification and the 
inheritance that you have can never be changed. If you knew those two things, wouldn't it be easy to resist the temptation to? I wouldn't be worried about losing out on things, would you? Would you be worried about losing out on things? Here's what about, would you worry about missing out on anything? Is there anything that you'd be worried about missing out on? Huh? I mean, I'm just asking. If gas is $25 a gallon, what you going to do? Is that going to change your justification? Is it going to change? Is it going to change your inheritance? Is it going to change anything? What really matters in the universe, is it going to change anything? If you knew that nothing that can happen in this world can do one doggone thing to who you are in Christ, you would live for what matters. You'd lay all this other stuff aside and you'd realize people are going to hell and then mercy, God would use you for good works. He would drive you through mercy to people everywhere you went and everything you saw you'd see with a heart of mercy because you'd meet people and you'd, you'd see the weight that was weighing down on their back of hell. That's why he used those words. Be ready. The time is now. It's not tomorrow. It's now. 